Our scripture is from Luke chapter 10. We're starting a new sermon series on the art of neighboring. And of course, we're going to be looking at and starting off with this story that Jesus told. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came, to, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. <clears throat> and Jesus said, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends, we love the story of the Good Samaritan. Sunday school children learn it early. They learn it easily. We understand its moral teaching. Your neighbor is anyone who has need. And we can't have a, a sermon series starting without a quote from Mr. Rogers. We live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. And the Good Samaritan is our hero. He'd be a hero of Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers was a Presbyterian minister, by the way. So he, he knew the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is our hero. He, he's not like that, those overpaid, narrow-minded, cold-hearted religious leaders who pass by on the other side. The Good Samaritan sets our standard. This is the way we live. We strive to be like that. And, and we like... We like having Good Samaritans help us on the side of the road. And, you know, when we've lost something, I was digging a, a, 
a French drain, a ditch, an irrigation ditch on the side of my house because we had some drainage issues in our yard. And I was struggling with it and, and working hard. And I kind of, I knew kind of what to do. I had all the stuff, but I kind of didn't understand slope very well. And um, my neighbor came by and he said, oh, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm making a French drain. And he said, oh, well, let me help you. And he came and and he's, he, was an he is an engineer, and he had like this laser level, and he's going, oh, you got to get the slope, and you got to do this, and it's got to be this inches, and we, that thing, it, it, all winter long, it just nicely drained all my water out, and, and I'm going, what a good Samaritan my neighbor is. He was amazing, and I, it felt really, really good to have that, that neighbor. And I think we love this parable, because somewhere inside of us, we want to be good neighbors. We were built for community. God built us in a certain way that we were together. And, and, and we want to be together. We want to be good to the people around us. Something in this parable resonates with us and points us in that direction. It especially resonates with us as followers of Jesus because the Spirit is moving in us to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. When I was busy, uh, you know, when, when Jesus was, is our Savior, and we're, we're busy doing all our, our, our stuff of life, there is a Spirit of God working in us, moving us to want to live as Jesus loved, to follow the pattern He laid down. We don't try to justify ourselves. We're we're, we're reformed. We are, we are Calvinists. We know we cannot justify ourselves. We know we cannot earn our way into, into eternal life. We can't do the things that, that are required by God. We need Christ to do those things for us, to go to the cross for us, and, and pay the price for us, to justify us. We don't justify ourselves because we all know we can't do that. But we want to do good works because the life of Christ is in us and we can do no other. We want to love our neighbor because we're already right with God. And, and that's what we do now. A few months ago, a, a, a number of us from the church read through the book, The Art of Neighboring, Building Genuine Relationships Right Outside Your Door. And it asked the question, what would happen if we all loved our literal neighbors, the ones living near to us, on our street, next door? What if we loved our neighbors, not so much to convert them, but because we ourselves are converted, and we just want to live that life, to love our neighbors? We want to live out the life Christ has given us. What difference to the neighborhood would there be because there are Christians living there. What difference would your neighborhood look like? Would, would there be? Because you are living there. We spend some time thinking about our neighbors and our neighborhoods. Who are they? What are their names? What do we know about them? How can we make our neighborhoods place, places of thriving and peace it's easy to love friends. It's easy to love your five good buddies. It's easy to love your family and your grandkids and everything is great. 
But what about the people physically close to you? What about people who might be different and have less in common with you? What about loving them? So that, that's why we ask that question. Who is my neighbor? That's the question the lawyer asks. And who is my neighbor? Well, for the lawyer, it was a question of, of uh, extent of concern. How far does my care need to extend away from me? He knew that the way to live was to love God, love your neighbor as yourself. He, he knew the law. He got it right. Jesus said, you're right, absolutely. So if my neighbor is my family, and the people in my village, and the people from my ethnic group, people I already know and already am you know, living with and, and doing things together and, and I'm loving them, well, then, then I'm good. Then I've fulfilled the law. Then, then I'm fine. <clears throat> God will justify me. I've fulfilled all the requirements of the law. But this lawyer must have been aware that there were others, that there were people in this world whom he has not loved in the same way as his neighbors. Maybe it was those strangers from another country who don't look like me and I just ignored them. Maybe it was those foreign occupiers of our land. Am I really supposed to love the pagan Roman soldier who presses me to carry a package for him for a mile and then presses my child to do it for another mile? Am I supposed to love those pagans who worship in the high places? Who should I love as my neighbor? And who, on the other side, who is not my neighbor and not my problem? Well, Jesus responds to those, that question with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was a vicious attack in a notorious part of the country. The man is left unconscious, he's stripped of his clothes, and there's no way to identify him. Jesus has made sure that this person is just a person. He has no accent because he can't, he can't talk. He has no customary village dress, so there's no way you can figure out where he's from. No way to tell at all this man standing in the land. He is, he is just a victim. A mere human in need of help. He is the original John Doe of no fixed address. What does the law require then? Jesus would, was asking. And he pictures how the law is lived out by showing how a holy, law-abiding person would respond. You have seen it lived this way. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed on the other side. A religious tradition dictated that he had to. A temple priest could not touch a dead body and could not touch a Gentile, a non-Jew. And since this person might have been both, then who could blame him? Because his livelihood and the, the spiritual practices of the entire nation depended on him remaining ceremonially, ceremonially clean. If he was not continually clean ceremonially, 
then they couldn't bring offerings. They couldn't do their, their religious services. They, they could, the whole temple rituals, they, they were endangered. His calling was to stay ceremonially pure, and that was unconditional and vital for the spiritual well-being of his people. His call to love his neighbor, well, that was conditional. And the law compelled the priest to move to the other side of the road. And then, so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed on the other side, the Levite had a little bit more latitude. Fear of defilement wasn't such an issue because, well, he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he had been in Jerusalem, he had done his duties in the temple, and now he was going back home. So his duties were done, and the repercussions would not be so drastic if he came into contact with a dead body or a non-Jew. And yet Levites were, they tended to be, well, less, have less resources, so he was probably walking and didn't have a donkey. So lack of resources might have been an issue. How could he help someone who he has no means to carry to safety? Or fear of robbers might have been an issue. To wait at the side of the road for assistance would risk the attack of those same robbers. And with no way of telling who the victim is, it's easier to follow the Levite because you know who's in front of you when you're walking down that road. You know who's behind you, and he knows there's a Levite that just walked past this guy. So he said, well, if that's what he did, that's what I'm going to do. He passed by on the other side, did not give aid to a fellow human being. Nothing really shocking about this, actually. This is how the law of holiness is lived out. Stay pure, keep away from messy people, even if they need help. Holiness is the highest good. But now comes the shock You know, people listening to this story would understand where Jesus is going here. He says, you know, here's the the big guy. Here's the kind of minor guy. And now I'm going to tell you about the ordinary guy. You know, temple priest, Levite, ordinary, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, whoever you are, average God-fearing guy. But Jesus doesn't do that. He shocks his audience. He says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And Jesus knows full well the epic, epic hatred that, was, that existed between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were the descendants of Jews who, if you know your, your history of Israel, Israel went into exile, first to Assyria, then to Babylon. And when they went into exile, the empire left some people behind, some Jewish people behind, the really, the no account people. The, the, they weren't the, you know, the kings and the princes, and, and you know, they, they were just left behind, the poor of the land. And, and then they, they also imported other groups to live there too. And and these Jewish people intermarried with those others. And and worse than that, they they 
uh, took their pagan religious practices into their Jewish ones. So they were impure. They, they were heretics of the worst kind. No good Jew would, would have anything to do with them. Avoid them like you would avoid a terrorist or a Nazi. If Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues and a prayer was daily offered to God asking that, that Samaritans would not be partakers in eternal life. So any Jewish person lying in a ditch, bleeding to death, upon seeing a Samaritan coming up to them would refuse help. I'd rather die in a pool of my own blood than you touch me. But this Samaritan, despised, rejected, despicable Samaritan, is nevertheless moved with compassion, and he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. Even though they were enemies, he cared for this person. Even though robbers might be laying, laying in wait, using him, using this, this, this man in the ditch as bait for any do-gooder who might want to come, and, and there's another victim for us. He stopped to help. And not only that, he went way over the call of duty. This, this is over-the-top goodness, this, this Samaritan. He tended to his wounds, wine and vinegar, or wine and, and oil, the, the medicine of the day, he applied it. He, he, lo- he tended his wounds. He loaded him on his own donkey. And when you see a, a person walking a donkey and a person on top of that donkey, you think, okay, the person leading the donkey is the servant and the one on the donkey is the master. So he humbled himself and, and led that donkey to the inn. And, and, you know, inns were notoriously evil places, not not a Ramada like we would think, but innkeepers were untrustworthy. The guests were usually thieves. And yet this Samaritan trusted the innkeeper with a blank check. Pay, I'll pay it, and if you help him, and I will pay you whatever. Here, here's a down payment. Don't, you know, I'll take... Any further cost. Don't put this man in jail until he pays. Just send me the bill and I'll pay it. The Samaritan thought of and did everything needed to make sure this injured man would recover from his attack and make his way back home. And then at this point, you would think that, um, that Jesus would now turn to the lawyer and say to that lawyer, That's your neighbor. Anybody who's lying in a ditch in a pool of blood, that's your neighbor. Any, anyone in need, even the anonymous man lying in the bottom of a ditch in the blazing sun, torn and twisted at the hands of a vicious gang with his heart barely beating, bleeding and unconscious the most da- on the most dangerous road in the country, faceless, nameless crime victim, that's your neighbor. Love that guy until he gets healthy again even if it costs you everything you have. If, if Jesus had said that, that would make sense because this lawyer was trying to justify himself by the law and Jesus had this habit of, of making the law so big, so unwieldy, so unable for us to keep it. Keeping the law is so impossible that you shouldn't even think to try justify yourself by keeping it. You need God's grace to be right with God, not your own good works. So you could expect Jesus to say, you want to justify yourself with good works? Go 
to it. Help a guy like that in that way. That's how you live by that law. You want to earn eternal life? That's how you do it, over the top. Goodness, spending your very self on an anonymous victim. And good luck with that. But Jesus doesn't do that. Did you notice? He doesn't do that. He asks this. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus didn't even answer his question. He answers the question he thinks the lawyer should have asked in the first place. Jesus is so good at turning those things around. You know, like the woman at the well or Nicodemus. You know, he's, they ask him a question and he goes, yeah, but this. And you go, what? He didn't even ask. Jesus gets at what, you're get, what you need to know and what you need to hear. He's good at turning things around like that, if not... Not, of not doing the expected, but going to the heart of what's going on. Because the lawyer <clears throat> wanted to scan society and figure out who his neighbor was, then he could focus on them as the location of his love and goodwill, and so fulfill the law and be right with God, and I'm okay. But Jesus shows him what's more important. Who's my neighbor? The lawyer asked. In the end, Jesus said, never mind that. Are you a neighbor? Who was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And by extension, how are you acting as a neighbor? You, the lawyer, how are you acting as a neighbor? You want eternal life. How are you acting as a neighbor? As Scott Jose points out, of course the two questions are related. The implication of the parable is that indeed everyone is my neighbor and that is why I must be a good neighbor to them but the shift in emphasis in verse 36 reveals again Jesus' desire that we become bearers of love everywhere we go. If our hearts are full of grace, mercy, compassion, and love for both God and everyone else, then we won't ask, who is my neighbor? Because it won't matter. The question becomes irrelevant if you are yourself already being a neighbor. And in the end, we need a change of heart. We need to move from being concerned with exceedingly correct behavior, focused so much on holiness and purity that keeps some in and, and some out, to following the way of grace, to following the way of mercy, to following the way of compassion. As the deacons were just called, show us the meaning of compassion. Make us compassionate people. Follow the way of service. Through the Good Samaritan, Jesus shows us that way of being a good neighbor. And it starts with seeing. The Samaritan did not pass on the other side. He didn't go willfully blind to the need of another person. He saw the man in the ditch. And Jesus did that. He didn't willfully blind himself. He came to become one of us. He entered our neighborhoods. He saw us. He saw people and knew their names. Do we, do we see our neighbors? Do we know their names? You know, I see the retired man mowing his grass. So I guess everything's okay and it's good for him to get out and, and, and moving. Yet, is he okay? Does he need help? I don't know until I ask. 
life in our culture is, is increasingly isolated and, and lonely and selfish and addicted and distracted. Who knows what's beating in the hearts in our neighbors? Who knows what's, what's beating them up until we start noticing? And it involves compassion. So often we're in competition with our neighbors. We're keeping up with those Joneses. Our neighbor may look like he's got everything together. He's living the life, his best life ever. They have the car, the boat, the cottage, the well-behaved, successful kids. And the Samaritan could have been all judgy. You're getting, oh, what are you doing walking here alone with all your valuables? You deserve what you got. Yet he allowed his heart to be moved with compassion. Here's a frail human being like me. And he's in need of help. And I can do something. Your neighbor is someone who is as imperfect as you are. The neighbor, your neighbor may not need your judgment or your holiness. But rather your compassion. Your sense of being in this together. He may need you to come alongside and help. And then comes action. He did some pretty heroic deeds taking the wounded man to the inn. He did what it took to get the wounded man back to himself. And he got the innkeeper involved and shared the task with him. Some call the innkeeper the second good Samaritan. It takes a community to help. It takes many gifts. It takes people with different capacities to help each other. And the Samaritan inviting the innkeeper to join him in caring he moved beyond the act of seeing and feeling for the victim and actually gave up his time and money and priorities and he begins building up a network of compassion by involving the innkeeper and adding a promise to follow up on his return trip. That's how you are a good neighbor. See, feel, act. You move toward the pain not away from it. You move toward the hurt, the rejection, the discouragement, the need. You show up. You help. That's how you become one of Mr. Rogers' heroes. And at the beginning of our passage, what is the lawyer asking for? <clears throat> Before the question of who is my neighbor, what's he asking for? He was concerned with finding eternal life. He was looking for, for life that's full and rich and connected to eternity. And Jesus connects him to that concern, or connects to that concern. And he shows him how. That's why Jesus didn't answer his question. He connects him to his earlier question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Be a good neighbor and you will find life. Lose yourself for the sake of others and you will find your life connected with a love that will last eternally. A love that's at the center of all there is in this universe. Follow the way of Jesus who gave himself up for us. Who sacrificed his very life so that we could have life. Learn from him to see, feel, and act towards the people you live beside. And you will have a life that, that you will not know of, or that, that is so powerful and connected to God. This kind of neighboring is an expression of the love that will go on for eternity. And you can experience some of it now by being a neighbor. And I wonder what we would do if Jesus were to turn to us.
and say, are you being a neighbor where you are? Are you following my example and serving those who need your help? In a world that's so isolated, distracted, self-sufficient, our neighbors need people who cut through it all and be who Christ calls them to, them to be, a neighbor. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for Jesus and how he was the good Samaritan to us who had landed in the ditch and needed to be saved. And Lord, as his life is living in us, may we too live that life. May we too <clears throat> share in that eternal life already now and to eternity. Oh Lord, help us to be as you have called us, as good Samaritans in Jesus. Amen.